we simply cannot allow people to pour into the United States undetected, undocumented, unchecked. And complete the dang fence. This bill that we will sign today is not a revolutionary bill. Cast down your bucket where you are. We come from France. And I am, you know, adamantly against illegal immigrants. They're coming in by the thousands. Just unbelievable. A wall is an immorality. Who are you rooting for? Those masters of the universe are at it again. You maniac! You blew it up! Welcome to Parsing Immigration Policy. This is Mark Krikorian, the Executive Director of the Center for Immigration Studies. And our guest today is someone who had and continues to have an important role in the immigration debate. John Hostetler is Vice President of Federal Affairs for States Trust, which is an initiative of the Texas Public Policy Foundation. And one of the reasons he's involved in this is because he was a member of the U.S. House of Representatives from Indiana for 12 years for several of those years, was chairman of the Immigration Subcommittee within the Judiciary Committee, and so was involved directly in the spasm of lobbying for amnesty and increased immigration during the George W. Bush administration. This was the effort at getting a big amnesty pushed that was before the Gang of Eight, which is something that's familiar to people. This is the one under George W. Bush. He was not for it. And so he's still involved in this, still writing on this, actually. And so I figured it would be good to have him as a guest. Thanks for joining us, John. It's great to be with you again, Mark. If you could tell us a little bit, just for listeners, how did you get into this? Why immigration at all? Southern Indiana, there's not a lot of immigration there. How did you, how did you get to that? Well, ancient history is I, I never had any goal or any aspiration to run for public office, but in 1992... Bill Clinton was elected, and he changed all that thinking for me and my Mm -hmm. family. And so we decided to become involved. The congressman at that time in the 8th District was an individual who was very supportive of President Clinton's initiatives, basically throughout the spectrum. And so I joined in with five other Republicans in the primary against a 12-year incumbent, and we were successful in the primary. And then at the end of the day, with a grassroots effort, significant grassroots effort, a lot of volunteers. We were victorious in November of 1994, and that was that contract with America class, if you remember. First time the Republicans took the House majority since whatever, Eisenhower. Right, since 1954. And so everybody was shocked about it, uh, not the least of which was me and my wife. But we went to Washington, D.C., and I attempted to get on the Judiciary Committee Early on in my first term, my passion was and is the Constitution, and so I wanted to become more involved in it directly. And so there was the Constitution subcommittee in the Judiciary Committee. And for reasons with regard to the rules, you might say at that time, I'm not an attorney. I didn't get that seat on the Judiciary Committee, started serving on the Armed Services Agriculture Committee. And then in 2001, with a changeover in uh, leadership of the committee, decided to attempted again and was successful this time with Chairman Sensenbrenner at the time. Mm-hmm. Chairman of the Judiciary Chairman of the Judiciary and, Committee, right. yes, James Sensenbrenner of Wisconsin. And then in 2003, as a result of some changes in personnel, members of the committee itself, they had to redo the subcommittee chairs. And 
I was chosen to be the chairman for the subcommittee on immigration, border security, and claims at that time was the name of the committee. And I got that rather intriguingly. I'll say that. Could you describe it as you're having drawn the short straw, basically? <laughs> well, no. As you mentioned, I'm from southern Indiana, and the most issues that we have with immigration is with the state of Kentucky and the Ohio River and, and that sort of thing. So that doesn't begin to compare with... You want to keep those people from Kentucky. Right? <laughs> That's right. And they would say the same about us Hoosiers. <laughs> but there was some, you might say, rearranging in the selection of the chairman, especially of the, the immigration subcommittee. And it fell to me, the chairman asked me slash required of me to become chairman. And so the staff, and I can say this now since Chairman Sensenbrenner is gone and most of the staff is, is likewise, I asked them, why was I chosen? Why in this particular way? And they said, well, the chairman thinks you make him look reasonable. And so, uh, and so that was told to me. And so I, I can do that job. I can, make, mm-hmm. I can make the chairman look reasonable. And so that's how I became chairman of the subcommittee, and Mark had you and Steve and, and others from CIS in front of our subcommittee, often pretty regularly, actually. Right. And so you were part of that group who informed me, educated me, enlightened me, and as well as the entire Congress on these issues. So that's how I came to be there in 2006. As a result of a lot of issues, the House went from Republican control to Democrat control after the election in 2006. I was one of those that lost my reelection bid in 2006. So went back to Indiana and a few years later came back to Washington, D.C. And in that process, the folks at the Texas Public Policy Foundation asked me to consider this post. And at that time, Texas Public Policy Foundation, TPPF, is the largest state-based think tank in the country, over 100 individuals. And there's a variety of these state Yes. Basically, state conservative think tanks. There's a lot of them. I don't know, 20, 25 of them. TPPF in Austin is clearly the biggest one. Yes. And in 2018, it decided to come to Washington, D.C. to have a federal presence. And so they stood up the organization States Trust in Washington. And in early 2019, I joined them as vice president of federal affairs. Now, at that time, we did not have a campaign related to immigration. We shortly thereafter, in later 2019, started Right on Immigration. That's the name of the effort, Right on Immigration. Right. That's the name of the effort. And campaign, to be clear, isn't electoral campaign. That's just sort of an initiative, is yes. what you guys call it. Yes. Yeah. And, and so that initiative, that center, if you will, that campaign, Right on Immigration, Texas Public Policy Foundation is a conservative organization, so we're right on everything. And uh, so in this case, we're right on immigration. And so in late 2019, we stood up that center right on immigration and started in this area that has become federal in nature. And our efforts are housed here in Washington, D.C., as opposed to other efforts of the foundation, like our right on health care folks are in Austin, and they deal with federal issues now as well as state issues. Our right on crime folks deal with criminal justice reform issues just as on the state level. and so. That's why we're here in Washington, D.C. Once again, we're heading up that immigration effort. First of all, just to go back maybe to when you were chairman of the Immigration Subcommittee, you didn't have a lot of history and familiarity with the issue, although the staff had been there for years, oh, yes. um, many years. Yes. Uh, so you inherited a very competent staff. Was there something that really stuck out as surprising to you about immigration policy? 
or the you know the way we handled immigration that you really didn't expect? Well, that's a great question because I guess it's it's twofold in that the law is pretty clear. By 2003, there had been put in place IRCA, the Immigration Reform Control Act of 1986, and and everybody remembers the amnesty, obviously, but there were also employer sanctions that were added at that time in 1996. Mm-hmm. We expanded on those with E-Verify and some others that chairman, at that time, Chairman Lamar Smith of the Immigration Subcommittee headed up the Illegal Immigration Reform and, and Immigrant Responsibility Act, or RIRA. And so what was interesting to me on one level is that the law was pretty clear. We just weren't enforcing it. We just weren't executing it. Mm-hmm. And so, and we, we had a Republican president when I, when I served there. So that was a little discouraging, but it made for lots of work for us. And secondly, it was clear to me that the Republican base was very much in favor of significant immigration reform, lowering the number of folks, you know, the United States takes in more immigrants legally than any other country. And I'm not telling you anything you don't know, Mark. You uh, educated me on this. So it seemed to me that given the nature of the law, the status of the law, and the status of popular support of simply executing the law and, and doing what we could to realize, especially after 9-11, you know, who's here and why are they here? You know, if they're here illegally, then, then we should be questioning people who are in the country illegally, especially after 9-11. I was in the Pentagon on the morning of 9-11, having breakfast with the Secretary of Defense and left about 13 minutes wow. before Flight 77 hit the Pentagon. And so it seemed, I'm an engineer, I'm not a lawyer. So I think logically, I, I like to think that sometimes my wife differs with me on that. But well, but, compared to lawyers, anyway. <laughs> so so this this all seemed that we were going in the wrong direction, and there was really no basis for doing that. So I guess those are the two things that struck me as being really inconsistent with what was happening. So to get now to what you're doing now, this Right on Immigration initiative of TPPF, what do you guys do? What does it stand for? What is it trying to call for? Well, it's called Right on Immigration. Everybody is familiar with the immigration policy sphere. However, we're looking at immigration like a layer cake. And this analogy is not original with me, but as a recovering politician, I steal this type of stuff all the time. My graduate school advisor said, when you hear a good line, steal it. <laughs> steal it. That's right. So, so we look at, at the immigration issue very broadly, you might say, as a layer cake. And the foundational layer, the bottom layer, is border security. The second layer is legal immigration and legal policy regarding aliens in the country. And then the third layer is the population is illegally in the country today, illegal aliens, the presence of illegal aliens. So we have learned as a result of experience and polling and even more advanced polling referred to as value laddering, that the vast majority of the American people, vast majority, 70% plus, want the border secure. And we believe that securing the border is the primary goal of any immigration reform whatsoever. If we don't secure the border, if we don't know who's coming here and why they're coming here, then the other two areas of that layer cake are just irrelevant. And so we've got to get a hold of the border. And so we're, we're focusing on the border. Uh, we have established a border security coalition, which has almost 50 members now across the right, center-right spectrum of the ideological spectrum. Are these state legislated? What does that mean? These are organizations, individuals from organizations 
former members, I mentioned earlier, Lamar Smith, former colleague, is a, is a member of it. Former Senator Jim DeMent, former Virginia official Ken Cuccinelli. And then we have folks like former Border Chief Rodney Scott, Mark Morgan. Sure, I see. Tom Holman and others, mm-hmm. as well as outside groups. Concerned Women for America is represented. And, and there are just a host of, of other groups that right. are similar, Eagle Forum and the like. And so there's about 50 of them. We meet on a quarterly basis at least. And sometimes we have border trips. We've got two scheduled for 2022 that we're going to return to the border. Hmm. We've gone a couple of times in 2021, both times to Del Rio. The first time was in early June, and we kind of started the whole process, you might say. About a week later, two weeks later, Governor Abbott came to Del Rio. Hmm. Then Senator Cruz came to Del Rio. I might have that order mixed up. But, but anyway, Del Rio had become the new hot spot. Folks remember the images of the bridge right, right. and the tens of thousands of illegal aliens under the bridge. And so we went there. And so the Border Security Coalition is there to exchange ideas and to get this out into the public to the greatest extent possible across a wide spectrum of groups. Right. So are there specific particular policies that you guys either have published about or written about or whatever that relating to the border? We've published about quite a few. And the interesting thing about when we started right on immigration, it was about August of 2019. If you remember in May of 2019 was when the spike hit over 140,000 illegal aliens being encountered at the Southwest border. Now we would now we would laud yeah, that wouldn't only be so bad. No. 140,000 at this point, <laughs> not, not to make light. So we, we stood it up, and shortly thereafter, we supported the president's, President Trump's initiative for migrant protection protocols, because what we knew early on in the process as a result of news accounts and firsthand knowledge is that the asylum system was being abused. Now, Mark, you remember, and you gave testimony to us, and, and this was so very unfamiliar to me in that they've actually changed the wording from apprehensions to encounters now. Right. That's under this administration. Yeah. And and so there's a good reason for that, really logically, because when I was in Congress and receiving your your input, Border Patrol was pursuing individuals who were trying to get away from them in their green uniforms and having to, quote unquote, apprehend them. Right. But because they were all here to a great extent. Many of them are here for economic reasons. They wanted a better life, a better job, more income that they could ultimately remit back to somewhere south of the border and in many cases return there. But they came into the country illegally. But now with the the asylum situation, they weren't fleeing from Border Patrol. They were approaching the folks in the green uniforms in order to make an, an asylum claim. And so this, we realized, and, and I'm sure you folks realized it much earlier than we did, realized that, that this was the heart of the matter, that if something wasn't done with asylum, that this was going to continue. Because, you know, once an individual sets foot on U.S. soil, they can make a claim for an asylum. And so they're coming into the country between the ports of entry. They're, they're entering illegally, but, you know, it's kind of a catch-22. Once they step foot here and they claim asylum, then the process begins with that. So MPP, Migrant Protection Protocols, Remain in Mexico, became key. And we wrote on that. We stressed the importance of maintaining that and reported on the progress Mm -hmm. of the declining numbers. I mean, just precipitously from May of 2019 as a result of that policy. 
And so whether it was that or the asylum cooperative agreements with the three countries of the Northern Triangle. For shorthand, safe third country agreements. Yes, yes. Right. And so as well as ending catch and release. So all, all of these issues we've written on. And, and at that time, the federal government was really stepping up to it. They, I guess I should say the executive branch. Right. During President Trump's administration, two years with Republican control, two years with Democrat control, neither of them able to to make legislative changes. So the administration had to use existing authority, and they did it very well, very smart, very effective changes in policy. And so we were supportive of that. Then after the election, in, and I'm sorry if I'm getting ahead of myself and ahead of you, but after the election in 2020, we, the Texas Public Policy Foundation, basically war-gamed what candidate Joe Biden had said. Mm-hmm. And we said, this is what's going to happen. So, and we talked not only about the, the explosion that's going to take place at the border. He said he was going to repeal Remain in Mexico. He said he was going to repeal cooperative agreements. He said he was going to slow down deportations, if not terminate them, which he ultimately attempted when he got into office. So he said he was going to do all this. None of this was a surprise. So we war-gamed it and said, this is what's going to happen. And not only was it going to affect the numbers of illegal aliens coming flooding into the country, we concluded, but it was also going to have a tremendous impact on the amount of drugs and human trafficking as well. So all of this has come to pass. And it's not rocket science. I actually took rocket science in college. <laughs> this wasn't it. I mean, he said, this is what I'm going to do if I'm elected. He did those things. And we have the situation at the border that we have now. Right. Before I ask my next question, how about what I want to ask is, can you tell people where to find these things? In other words, where are TPPF? Where is it online? And also, are these specific initiatives somewhere separately online? Yes, you can go to Texas Policy all one word, texaspolicy.com. And we have a nice menu bar there that the IT folks have created that has issues. And immigration is an issue that we've had several people write on and comment on or do research on. You can go to issues and go to issue of immigration. And there it's under immigration. A lot of it is on border security. Some of it is on immigration policy but probably 90% of it is on addressing the issue at the border. And it is texaspolicy.com.org? Yes, I'm sorry. Yes, texaspolicy.com. .com. Okay, good. So one of the responses to the disaster that you talked about were seen under this administration has been at the state level, because even though the Democrats control both houses of Congress and the national executive, Texas has most of the border. 1,200 miles of the almost 2,000 miles, and the governor of Texas is Greg Abbott's a Republican. He has tried to do some things under Texas's own authority, like arresting people for trespassing, which is a state offense, this sort of thing, using the state police. What are your thoughts on that? Have you guys looked into it since obviously TPPF is in Texas? What's your take on that? Well, we, we have, and we've been very supportive. We are very supportive of those efforts. It's unfortunate that the state has to do this, but Governor Abbott and the state legislature has stepped forward and committed, for example, over a billion dollars in funding of construction of a border barrier, a, a wall on a property that is owned by the state as well as willing sellers. My understanding is they haven't, they don't intend to exercise eminent domain, but they have many individuals who are willing to sell land for the construction of the border wall on the federal level, kind of as an aside, but very important, Congresswoman Van Dyne of Texas has introduced legislation that would call for the transfer 
of materials that are in many cases just lying on the ground. I have pictures of them. I've seen them right. myself. Yeah. Yeah. And to get that material transferred to Texas, New Mexico, Arizona. Mm-hmm. And so that's something that the governor and the state are working on. As you mentioned, they are making arrests of individuals who are on property of willing complainants, you might say. Uh, There are over 100 property owners at the border that have said they will sign a complaint against an illegal alien who is trespassing on their property as a result of illegally entering the country. And then the governor attempted early on in last year to stop individuals from transporting illegal aliens. He has so far been stopped by a federal court Mm -hmm. in that the governor and the state of Texas are trying their best to stay within you know, you might say their lane, the lane of the state, and in order to to at least attempt to diminish this impact, this chaos on their border. So let's say the Republicans take the House next year or the elections at the end of this year, which is almost a given. They may or may not take the Senate. They're still not going to have the White House, obviously. Are there things they can do? Are there things that Republicans, if they have at least one House of Congress, is there some way they can move the ball forward? Well, there, it, it's very limited, as you mentioned, in order to legislatively make a change, especially if the Republicans only have control of one of the two chambers. But it's our understanding and, and our experience that Republicans in the House are actually looking forward to what they can do. The minority leader has stood up we know in one area, uh, an American security task force that is specifically looking at the border and border security, among other things. Mm-hmm. And Mark, that's really, in my experience, kind of unprecedented. In the 12 years I was in Congress, the border and immigration were an issue for several of us, and I would say maybe even a majority of the Republican conference, but it never made its way to leadership, the leadership level. Now, once again, leadership in 1996 put ERIRA, Chairman Smith's bill, on the floor, and we voted on it. It was substantial reform, but especially after President Bush became president and, and he had a, a less enthusiastic perspective on enforcement and execution than a lot of us wanted. That's politely put. But. The, the, the conference really was never aggressive on it as, a, as an official, but here with the American Security Task Force, headed up by Congressman Katko, and with other members on the task force, we actually, a colleague of mine and I from the foundation actually took part in a briefing of members on the border, members of the task force on the border. So the Republicans in the House are, like I said, in my experience, in an unprecedented way, looking at the border especially. And that's very encouraging, especially for Texas. So as you kind of alluded to, we've, you saw, obviously, when you were in Congress as well, there has always been a kind of tension within Republicans, sort of a, you know, chamber of commerce kind of orientation slash libertarian versus a more immigration hawkish view. Do you, I mean, I don't want to put you in a difficult position, but do you see that within TPPF or does your immigration initiative encounter those kind of I don't know, I wouldn't say resistance, but maybe ambivalence about immigration enforcement? Well, that's a great question. Within TPPF, no. First of all, the foundation stood up the right on immigration initiative itself and then has been very supportive in our efforts with the border on border security. 
And we are concentrating on border security of that layer cake, if you, if you think about it. Right. Because Texas is being overrun. The, mm-hmm. the border is in chaos. And so this is something that the foundation is very serious about. Mentioned earlier the, the construction of the wall. It was our previous CEO, Kevin Roberts, who made a push for that with the governor. Really? To, okay. Yes. For Texas to take that on since, since the Biden administration had literally laid down the materials along the border and, and, and stopped the construction of the process. So we were really the tip of the spear, Kevin and TPBF were really tip of the spear to get that initiative before the governor and to press the governor on that. It wasn't, didn't take a lot of pressure, right, but right. Uh, uh, we were out on front on that issue. And so we're doing research now on the situation at the border and we're getting great support from the foundation. So within the foundation, they are very supportive of our efforts. Any new, you said you're doing research. Is there anything new that people should look for that might be published or any efforts that they'll be hearing about? Well, we, we're in the process of finishing up at least five research papers on the border and border security and a relationship between the U.S. and Mexico and Texas. And myself and a colleague, Sierra Hall, are focusing on federal statutes that empower state and local authorities. And so Mm -hmm. the paper includes a discussion of two of those. The first is 287G, which is a program that permits local authority to request of the federal government to have their personnel empowered to execute immigration laws. And then the second is to look at a section of code that's been in place, some of it since 1952, which directly empowers state and local authority to deal with what we call human smuggling. Mm-hmm. Now, and human smuggling is different from human trafficking, right. but human smuggling has been a problem for, for decades, going on 70 years now since, since the first statute was put in place to empower state and local authority directly. And just to be clear for listeners, trafficking is basically when you're kidnapped or coerced or somehow tricked or something, where smuggling is where the alien himself is a willing participant and is paying to be smuggled. Yes, not, not only a willing participant on the smuggling end, but initiates right. the entire process as opposed to an individual who's trafficked. Now, to be fair, an individual who originally is smuggled can be trafficked, but the statute that we're focusing on is the smuggling. And to that point, if we reduce the amount of smuggling into the United States, the illegal aliens asking to be smuggled into the United States, then we are going to definitely positively impact human trafficking. We are going to greatly diminish human trafficking. And so we're dealing with human smuggling. And the, the distinction, kind of a spoiler here in the paper, but spoiler only to wonks. But <laughs> so the 287G program, as I mentioned, requires permission from the feds. From the feds. Right. And in fact, to date, at least in 2021, the federal government, the Department of Homeland Security, actually took on no new memorandums of agreement with local authorities to enter into 287G. So this administration, once again, candidate Joe Biden said he didn't like 287G. He didn't like this program. And so they're not letting new organizations, new agreements come into place. But the human smuggling statute that I mentioned does not require permission. It is expressly, explicitly granted to anyone whose job it is to enforce the law, as as the statute says, which means state and local authorities. So Mm. 
So state and local authorities can arrest individuals who are not only trying to bring someone in, bringing someone in. It, the word smuggling is actually not in the statute. It's bringing in and harboring right. aliens. And in 1996, with ORIRA, we added a conspiracy element. And so the illegal alien himself is part of the conspiracy because he's willingly initiating it and paying for it. Yes, yes. And, and so that's unprecedented. That would be unprecedented in the application. But I think the wording of the law, once again, for a disclaimer, I'm not an attorney, but the clear wording of the law is, quote, any person who engages in any conspiracy, end quote. Right. And so I believe that that would implicate the, the alien who's being smuggled. Not to uh, end on a downer, but even that would require U.S. attorneys to actually do the prosecuting, right? Because it would be a federal offense. That's a, that's a great point, Mark. Right. Yes, that's exactly right. And that would require them. The point we make in the paper is that does not terminate the arrest authority, but it would potentially, and under this administration, likely be discouraged by this Department of Justice. Right. So um, now remind people again where they can find the work that you all are doing. We are at www.texaspolicy, all one word, dot com. And then there's a, you basically you pick the subject. Is it issue areas? What does yes, it say? It, issues? It, 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 issues, yes. Immigration, and that's where they'll see a lot of this work. Well, yes. thank you. John Hostetler has been our guest. He's the vice president of federal affairs for States Trust, which is part of the Texas Public Policy Foundation. You might put it, it's it's sort of the foundation's embassy in Washington, D.C., kind of. That's uh, a great way to put it, yes. <laughs> and so I appreciate your joining us, and it's good to hear about what you all are doing. we got plenty of work here for plenty of think tanks. Uh, this isn't competition. It's good to see, you know, let a hundred flowers bloom, as um, somebody once said. Anyway, thanks for joining us. I hope you'll come back at some point when there's something else and something new to talk about. I look forward to it, Mark, and it's good to be with you again. Thank you. And finally, I wanted to draw your attention to a blog post we have put up this week, and we'll probably have some more following it, from Todd Benzman, who's the Center's National Security Analyst. He is down in southern Mexico this week, down in the border town of Tapachula, on the border with Guatemala. And his first report from down there basically says that the Mexican government, which has cooperated with us in migration control measures under the Trump administration, has basically been pretending to cooperate under the Biden administration. Lots of illegal immigrants, Central Americans, but also Africans and Brazilians and Haitians and who knows what else, make their way up through Central America, which has become a, you know, a well-known, well-trodden path. They cross from Guatemala, they cross the river into Mexico, and Tapachula is the town down there, and the Mexican government has basically bottled up those folks and said, look, you need to get some kind of transit visa, and you have to wait here until we give it to you, and then they slow walk it and don't give it to them. Basically, it's a way to slow the flow. All of those people are heading to the U.S. border, of course. Well, what seems to be the case now is that when there are too many people bottled up there, when the numbers get big enough, they do what in other contexts they call line flushing. Like if there's too many people at a toll booth or inspection point or whatever, often they'll just sort of let everybody through and then start inspecting again. Well, it's kind of a similar thing here. Apparently, just after Christmas, this is a few weeks ago, after bottling up these illegal immigrants, there were so many of them 
that Mexico basically did line flushing. It, it just uh, sent them all some kind of digital visa, QR code visa. And not just that, but also to avoid the kind of PR disaster that happened in Del Rio, if you remember with thousands of Haitians camped out under a bridge on our side of the border, what they seem to be doing is busing them. The Mexican government is busing them in smaller groups across various states in northern Mexico in what the folks down there, the local reporters and other observers, are calling an ant operation. In Spanish, it's a Operación Hormiga. And this is a common phrase. Gun smugglers use it. Other people, even uh, it's protest tactics, use it. The point is you move people in in small numbers, one at a time, kind of single file. That's the idea. Rather than a huge number of people or whatever the issue is all at once, kind of like we saw in Del Rio. So small numbers. Basically, the point is to camouflage the flow and make it appear as though it's not as big as it is. And the Mexican government seems to be using this ant operation approach to clear out the illegal immigrants that it had you know, promised us that it was bottling up in southern Mexico. But then when it became you know, too much for them to deal with, they pursued this ant operation strategy to disperse them and get them to the United States where they wanted to go, get them out of Mexico, because they don't care whether they're coming here. The Mexican government just wants them to get out of Mexico. And this is me talking now. Todd wasn't making this point, but you know, this is the kind of thing that other governments are going to do to take advantage of us when there is weakness at the top of our government. This is not something that the Mexican government would have done when President Trump was in office. And yet, it is the kind of thing that countries around the world will be doing to us because they know they can get away with it, because there is a weak hand or maybe no hand at all at the tiller. Uh, and Mexico is not our enemy, but it's a country with its own interests. You know, China and Iran and Russia may be taking advantage of us. Those places really are our adversaries. Mexico is not our adversary, but it's its own country. It has its interests, and its interest is not having all these illegal immigrants in there. They don't want illegal immigrants in their country any more than we want them here. And if the easiest way to get rid of them is to pursue this strategy of busing them to various places on the border and then having them cross piecemeal so you know, it doesn't get the same kind of news attention as the Del Rio fiasco did, then they're going to do it if they think they can get away with it. And given the weakness, or really basically absence of anybody in charge in the White House, they know they can get away with it. So I think it was a very important service that Todd did in sending up this dispatch. And he's down there. I mean, he's talked to local government people, to reporters down there, to aliens themselves. So this isn't something he's making up. This is something that other news media should have been pursuing. But as you can imagine, they're not interested. And there's going to be other reports from him. They're all going to be at our site, cis.org. There should be a slide up at the top. We have a slideshow of top stories. And one of those will be this one and the following dispatches that Todd sends, and they'll all be linked there. Anyway, and all other publications are obviously there. Uh, as a final point, if you are listening to this podcast, if you subscribe to it on any of the platforms that allow reviews, I think Apple does. I'm pretty sure Google does not, but some of them do. We'd very much appreciate your review, a five-star review if possible, a six-star if they have it, 
And uh, even if not, we're always glad to hear from listeners. You can just email me directly at msk at cis.org. That's it for this week, and I hope you tune again next week for Parsing Immigration Policy. 